Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at the Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains depictions of war, violence, suicide, sexual assault, rape, gore, mature themes, abortion, and racism. On the tip of the Caribbean, acting as a shield from the mighty Atlantic Ocean, there stands an island. This island has gone by several different names throughout history. Today, it is called Puerto Rico, or Rich Port. When European colonizers first conquered in 1493, it was renamed San Juan Bautista by the Italian explorer Columbus under Spanish patronage. Prior to that, the natives he encountered referred to the island as Boriquen, or the land of the valiant and noble lord. When the Spaniards encountered the native peoples, the Spaniards claimed they meant no harm, saying Taino, Taino, which meant good in the native language. These Tainos, as the Spanish called them from that point forward, had lived on the land for hundreds and maybe thousands of years. They were not the first nor even the second inhabitants of the land. Upwards of three or more migrations of people were inhabiting the 7,000 different islands in the Caribbean for many eons previously. How these Tainos arrived, how they were exterminated, how their ancestors still survive, is what we're going to discuss today. How these native peoples affected the land, language, and culture of the many islands of the Antilles is often glossed over. It is only brought up as a means to set up a story about a great conqueror or make a point about how quote-unquote civilized our modern world is. The racist misinformation that has been distributed to the public and its schools en masse about Aboriginal Americans needs re-examination and correction. It is allowed for the spread of the stereotype of the noble savage who lived in harmony with their neighbors and with nature. It also contributed to the harmful black myth, the idea that Spanish colonization wasn't all that bad. And regardless of what happened, the natives would have been wiped out. These are two major fallacies, and they must be confronted. The Caribbean Sea ranges an area of over 750,000 square miles. However, only 82,000 square miles is above water. These land masses formed over many eons thanks to millions of years of volcanic ash forming the landscapes of the area. If the Earth's 4.5 billion-year lifespan were broken down into a 100-minute movie, the Caribbean would have only existed for the last five minutes. 
A massive mountain chain defines most of the Greater Antilles, Hispaniola, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico, with the highest peak being at 10,000 feet, located in modern-day Dominican Republic. The similarities in these islands do not stop there. All three share a similar climate and topography, with the northern half of these islands being subtropical and humid, while the southern halves are dry and arid. Deep in the surrounding Atlantic Ocean, the seafloor drops into one of the great ocean craters, the Milwaukee Deep. Puerto Rico is the fulcrum between these Caribbean and Atlantic extremes. Its strategic position protects the soft underbelly of Mexico via Veracruz, as well as the Mississippi Delta. This helps explain why Puerto Rico is the single oldest colony in the world. Thanks to its location, Puerto Rico was able to develop some truly unique species of flora and fauna, which remain separated from their mainland counterparts. Many land mammals, and possibly the first people, crossed into the Antilles through ancient land bridges that at one point connected the islands, which had then held the likeness of a giant snake. As sea levels rose, these bridges became submerged, and the inhabitants of the islands became isolated. In Puerto Rico, various tree frogs called coqui speciated. Additionally, massive trees like the osubo, the ciba, and over 90 varieties of unique orchid trees can be found there. Numerous iguanas, snakes, birds, and fish can be found across the island with many unique species inhabiting the northern rainforests. The mangrove swamps are found in abundance in Puerto Rico. They're the main breeding ground for these unique species, as they provide a place of refuge for newborn creatures. Puerto Rico's waterways and reefs also provide a source of sustenance for the animals and people. The northern plain is home to calcareous rock formations, which eventually erode into caves after prolonged rainfall. The locals refer to these formations as magote. These natural caves were places of worship for the native Tainos. In the coming years, they would be transformed into the hideouts for runaway slaves or deserting soldiers. We have very little information on the first settlers of the Antilles. It is believed they traveled to Cuba and then Hispaniola, around 8,000 years ago, perhaps using the natural currents and waterways of the Yucatan Peninsula. They settled inland and produced basic tools using flint and stone so they could hunt and forage. The next group of settlers came from South America, either from the Orinoco River Basin in modern-day Venezuela or farther south in the Amazon. These fishermen who skirted by the more arid islands of the Lesser Antilles were the first to settle Puerto Rico. The Mona Passage, a body of water separating Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, created a natural barrier between these two societies, and it is likely they traded and mingled with one another. The next settlers came in waves over a thousand-year period. Some came from South America, but where they came from exactly is still up for debate. These settlers, deemed the agro-ceramics by genealogists, contributed hugely to ancient Caribbean agriculture and created artistic ceramic works. Their people spread all the way to eastern Hispaniola, 
where they slowly assimilated the fishermen and hunter-gatherers of the area. This culture traded extensively with the South American mainland, and Dr. Richard Parada suggests it's possible they might have traded with mainland America via the Cherokee or Natchez tribes, and with Mexico via the Maya, his evidence being several Taino ancestors were found in modern-day Louisiana and the Pacific Northwest. This points to a massive trade partnership connecting nearly all the entities in pre-Columbian North America, with natives from present-day Oregon trading with Mexico, and in turn, the Caribbean. These agro-ceramics had complex burial and religious rites, and they were even known to have domesticated a silent dog, which is now extinct. This dog was often buried with their owner. This wave of migrants ruled from 500 B.C. until 600 A.D., when they were supplanted once more by the Osteonoid culture. Osteonoid culture had either naturally come about as a result of agro-ceramic culture evolving, or it resulted from a new migration wave. Their influence spread up to the islands of Jamaica and eastern Cuba, where they displaced and assimilated the local quote-unquote archaic populations. They created new farming techniques and pottery production. There was a rapid increase in population, which caused the villages and internal power structures to grow and change. Previously, the agro-ceramics had produced incredibly detailed pottery, but following the rise of the Osteonoids, their pottery changed. In Tainos and Caribs by Sebastian Rubius Lamarche, he states, quote, In Puerto Rico, about 100 years A.D., pottery began to reflect certain changes. It lost its exquisiteness. Gone is the polychromatic designs and the elaborate decorations, unquote. The use of mounds, or montones, was an integral aspect of Ostenoid culture. Previously, whole seedbeds would be washed away in the torrential downpours of the wet season, likely causing famine and thinning the population. The Osteonids grew exponentially upon discovering that this technique provided protection as well as nutritious topsoil for their seedlings. Their main crop was yucca, or cassava, a tuber in the yam family. Once the root is cleared of poisonous juices in a complex process discovered by these same natives, it can easily be turned into a bread or paste. This yucca bread held much better in the subtropical climate than any bread made from maize or wheat. The spread of Ostenoid agricultural practices also brought about more free time, which was devoted to religious worship and stargazing. These pre-Tainos worshipped stone figures, or semis. These semis were usually three-pointed, presumably representing the balance of nature. Before worshipping these stone figures, the people would snort kohoba, which was a hallucinogen, and then they would purge their stomachs using a tool of their own invention to induce vomiting. They believed this purified the mind and body, allowing them to see the revelations of their semis. These semis were humanoid, with animal faces and details. Each semi had its own name and abilities. 
there is still some debate surrounding the Osteonoid culture, many considering it a pre-chiefdom culture, while others see it as the true start of the Taino period, marked by cohesive social organization and tribes formed around chiefs or caciques. This was no idyllic life by today's societal standards. It was struggle, but it was more balanced with nature. Although these native peoples lived relatively peacefully, their hunters were extremely proficient, driving many native fauna to extinction. Traps and expert bowmanship led to the extinction of the giant sloth in Cuba, as well as the decimation of the manatee and local rodents. This surely contributed to their need to expand and evolve their agricultural practices. During this period, there was an explosion of cultural expansion and diversification. The cultures which developed between 900 AD and 1200 AD were varied and intricate. Several developed in Hispaniola alone, made apparent through the differences in the styles of pottery each culture produced. They maintained several similarities, including founding myths, language, and trade. These varied peoples are considered the foundational pieces of the Taino culture. While these Tainos were discovering their own way of life, the Central American Mayan people were dying after decades of drought. With their demise came the loss of the Taino people's connection to the mainland. Additionally, the Lesser Antilles were now occupied by the warlike Carib tribe. The Carib tribe is said to have left for the South American mainland, possibly as refugees from their original homes. When they arrived, they quickly killed the men of the local Ignari tribe, took the women as brides, and began speaking in the native tongue. However, they continued to maintain their own warrior traditions. The Caribs had cut the connections the Tainos had with the South American coast, and their tradition of bride capture resulted in many raids on Taino villages. These raids reinforced the need to centralize authority. The cacique or cacica was now placed in charge of the many thousands of villages the Tainos still controlled throughout the Virgin Islands, Jamaica, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, and Hispaniola. The Taino people were not a homogenous culture. It is very likely that the various chiefdoms each held their own traditions. Every village had its own unique spirits and gods, which defended them in times of hardship. Irving Rouse separated the Taino ethnicity into three separate subgroups. The eastern Tainos of the Virgin Islands, by far the most warlike and least populous thanks to Carib incursion, the classic Tainos, which inhabited most of Puerto Rico and Hispaniola, who were known for their ball games, which they seemingly developed independently from the Aztec, and finally, the western Tainos, who inhabited east-central Cuba, the Bahamas, and Jamaica. The western Tainos were the newest inhabitants. Their Cuban settlements were in mid-expansion when Columbus arrived. Western Cuba was controlled by the original hunter-gatherers of the island, who called themselves the Guanahatabe. The most interesting aspect of the Taino culture was that they shared more in common with each other when separated by bodies of water than they did when separated by huge tracts of land. 
This was a testament to the seafaring abilities of these early peoples. Society was set up matrilineally, meaning inheritance was based on the oldest female line. This did not mean women inherited any title. Almost all the leaders were men. Having a casica was a rare occurrence. Through the study of early political organization in Hispaniola, we can assume that the chiefs of the Antilles had either local or regional control. These leaders were organized in defensive island-wide confederations. Chiefs practiced bigamy, having dozens of wives. The favorite wife of a dead cacique was often buried alive with him. Chiefs regulated the villages, distributed food, organized the planting and harvesting of crops, and set up ball games and religious ceremonies. They were immediately distinguishable, wearing necklaces made of copper gold called Juanin, and their guisas headdresses. Below the cacique were the niteños, usually family of the cacique. Columbus considered these the quote-unquote nobility. In reality, they were the middle managers of the village, and often the chiefs go between. Following colonization, these same middlemen would be turned into overseers to better exploit their own people at the behest of the Spanish. Next in the hierarchy was the Bejique. These were the medicine men of the village, often called on to give religious prophecies or to heal the sick of disease. Their role was often ceremonial. However, they used several herbal medicines, which are still used to treat ailments today. For example, freshly brewed coffee can treat pink eye when placed over the affected eye. This cure was first discovered by the Bejique. Next were the Naborias. These were the common villagers who lived and worked for the cacique. While they were not forced, they were obliged to do the bidding of their chief, as he often held the most powerful semis and could grant spiritual boons to those loyal to him. To understand Taino social hierarchy, it's necessary to understand their people's founding myths. Unfortunately, the few things written about Taino religion are based on the writings of the Spaniard Ramon Paine. Additionally, his writings are merely a translation of a translation. That being said, his work is one of the few insights on Taino cultures which were saved after its decimation. The Taino people believed that the first humans emerged from caves in central Hispaniola, which the Tainos called Bojillo, literally translated to mean home. From these caves also came the first stone, tree, and bird, as well as those people who were, quote, without merit, unquote, or anyone who is not Taino. Their main deity was named Yakuha Bagua Merekoti, whose name translates to being of the Yuka and the sea without male predecessor. This being, Yakuha, also had a mother. Her name was Atabe, and she arguably elicited more worship than her son. Yakuha, in time, had a son of his own named Yael, whom he killed after growing suspicious that he would usurp him. He placed Yael's bones into a higuero, a sort of hollowed-out gourd hung for burial ceremony, and magical fish formed out of his son's remains. Then four sons of Mother Earth happened upon the hanging gourd, 
and attempted to eat the fish inside. Instead, the contents spilled out, forming the sea and all the creatures found within. In another story, the four brothers steal fire from the fire god, Be-Maneko. In anger, the god spits Kohobo onto the back of the eldest brother. From this festering wound, a live female turtle was dug out and perhaps became one of the first semis. Various myths circulated, all made to explain the creation of the Taino people's social structure, as well as the land and sea around them. As mentioned previously, Tainos believed all people stepped out of caves in central Hispaniola. There were also two caves on either end of the landmass, which held significant religious and cosmological value to the native peoples. From these caves, located center, east, and west, the Tainos believed they held the key to all creation. They believed that the island itself was alive, these central caves serving as the uterus, from which all life on the island emerged. The eastern cave was located at the precise position of sunrise, while the western cave was located at the precise position of sunset. These caves were where the sun slept for the night, only to be reborn in the morning. These myths serve as evidence that Tainos were adept at cosmology. The myth of the first cacique also drives home this point. Among the first Tainos were two brothers, Guahayona and Anakakuya. Guahayona is said to have gathered the Taino women onto a canoe before setting out to leave. However, he could not depart until he dealt with his brother, the first cacique. He told his brother to look at a conch shell that he was pointing at in the sea, and as Anakakuya looked down, he was drowned by his own sibling. Guahayona could now set sail. On his voyage, he discovered many new lands. He arrived at the island of Matininio, where he left the women to fend for themselves and departed for the island of Juanin. There, he was given a copper-gold alloy by the same name. Unfortunately, he also contracted syphilis during his stay, but he was treated by a local woman with Palo Santo. In return, Guajayona took a new name, and she provided him with the sacred stones, or sibas, which allowed him to become the first behik. Tainos believed the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, represented the first cacique. It is seen in the night sky for only seven months out of the year in the Caribbean region. As the Earth moves in relation to the Big Dipper, the stars appear to become submerged in the ocean. This cosmic event coincides with the start of the rainy season in the Caribbean. Once the Big Dipper returns to the sky in full form, hurricane season begins. The anger and wrath of the first cacique was then felt by the Taino people. These stories demonstrate the Taino people's deep understanding and knowledge of the stars, their environment, and their place in the world. Back in Hispaniola, the Taino men were distraught over the loss of their women, and their children had all been turned into small frogs. One day, it is said that four asexual beings descended from great trees. Four unafflicted men walked toward the beings, and the four men who had syphilis held their feet down. Then the Caribbean woodpecker, believing the beings to be trees themselves, 
came and drilled the sex into the four heavenly humanoids. The red dot on the heads of Caribbean woodpeckers was believed to be the blood the beings shed in this process. This is the origin story of the first Taino woman, and it helps to explain the matriarchal society they formed. Although Caribbean life was beautiful and mystical to the Tainos, it was also wrought with destruction due to hurricane season. Hurricanes are formed when rising warm ocean water meets cold air and begins a process called upwelling. In the ensuing vortex, an eye wall is formed around the whipping winds, which are generated by the combination of the warm air rising and cool air falling. Pushed forward by wind and ocean currents, hurricanes cause immense devastation yearly. Puerto Rico has been repeatedly affected by these storms, as they have destroyed countless homes and lives throughout the island's history. These disasters can cause 100-mile-per-hour winds, flooding, torrential rain, and even tornadoes. Thanks to climate change, hurricanes will only increase in number, bringing about more displacement, devastation, and heartache. Undoubtedly, these events caused mayhem for the natives in pre-Columbian times as well. Contrary to popular belief, the Hurukan was not a Taino god. Rather, it was the manifestation of the physical form of a Guabonque, presumed goddess of wind. Wahataba, the god of harsh rain, and Kotriski, the god of floods and stagnant water. This triad existed in stark contrast to the gods who controlled good rain, good wind, and flowing water. Everything in Taino society was about maintaining balance. Those who could stay the path would be able to avoid the unlucky gods' manifestations. Taino village structure helps explain the founding myth still further. They set up villages and structures with the stars in mind, and often had their homes rebuilt over subsequent generations on the same land. This likely stemmed from the oneness in which Tainos believed the world operated. There was no death or destruction, only growth or lack of growth. Tainos preferred to settle close to rivers and hills for practical as well as religious reasons. They participated in village-wide dances, or arietos, where they recalled their founding myths in hours-long call-and-response songs. During these dances, they would play the maracas and gourd drums, then sit and have a barbecue of crab or manatee meat. These arietos contributed to the Taino's incredible recall ability. Bartolome de las Casas claimed that the average Taino was able to recall, quote, upwards of 30 pages of Christian scripture without stumbling, unquote. In Puerto Rico, and especially Hispaniola, massive earthwork structures were built for their ball games and religious ceremonies, the largest being 410,000 square feet. This massive earthwork also corresponds exactly with the position of the sun during the solstices and the equinox. Villagers lived in massive round structures, often with extended family. Settlements were built around a cross-shaped grid, with the cacique's hut inhabiting the center. 
The people grew maize, sweet potato, and yucca. Cotton was grown for hammocks, and tobacco was used in purification rituals. Around these massive agricultural mounds that contained tens of thousands of plants, semis were planted in the hopes of boosting production. After the Spanish arrival, six Tainos buried effigies of the Virgin Mary and urinated on the spot, using the same ritual they used for their semis. The Spanish burned them all at the stake for this act. Sometime before the arrival of the Spanish, a cacique from Hispaniola named Caiquija was given a prophecy by his semi. It said to him that men would come in huge boats, and they would rule and kill and starve. It was a prediction that would prove all too true. The two worlds were about to collide for the first time in 500 years. The Vikings, having settled Newfoundland during the 1000s, had since died out or assimilated with the native tribes of the area. The Spanish would not come as traders and neighbors like the Vikings did. They arrived with the intention of conquering, raping, and enslaving, things they would do to the Taino natives with alarming proficiency. Prehistorically, the Iberian Peninsula was a massive entity. At least six different cultures each had their own spoken language at the time of Roman conquest. The Romans exploited the native Iberians, forcing them to work endlessly mining raw materials. Roman mining networks were incredibly advanced for the time. These mines employed tens of thousands of native Iberians, who were worked to death by the Roman war machine. After Rome's fall, the formerly Germanic Visigoth tribe controlled the vast majority of the land. They were notoriously unstable, many of their kings having been murdered by immediate or extended family. In 711, a new invader gripped Iberia by the throat. The Umayyad Caliphate crushed the Visigothic kingdom, occupied the southern Byzantine coast, and overwhelmed the other Germanic nations controlling the northwest. Nearly all of the Iberian Peninsula, then called Al-Andalus, was then controlled by Islamic invaders. The only independent Christian nations were relegated to the northern hills, trapped between mountains and ocean. These small Christian states were severely impoverished compared to the metropolis of Cordoba, now under the control of the caliphate by the same name. By the 11th century, internal strife would cause the caliphate of Cordoba to disintegrate into a dozen different independent realms. This helped fuel the Reconquista of Hispania by the newly invigorated Christian kings. The Black Death, the start of the Hundred Years' War, and the massacres against their own Jewish citizens halted their progress for a time. By the 1400s, however, the only Muslim nation remaining in the Iberian Peninsula was the Kingdom of Granada, which existed as a Christian vassal state. The rest of the peninsula was composed of Castile, which was by far the largest, Portugal, which produced many expert ocean navigators, and Aragon, which was a successful trade empire in the Mediterranean. Once these Iberian states had nearly completed their Reconquista, a shift in global trade began. The Ottoman Empire had recently risen to power in present-day Turkey. They quickly annihilated the thousand-year-old Byzantine Empire, 
and found themselves in the enviable position of controlling the lucrative Silk Road. They immediately placed massive taxes on any foreign goods which passed through their territory. This made it nearly impossible for Europe's poorer nations to acquire highly prized East Asian resources, namely spices. New routes to Asia needed to be established in order to better exploit these foreign markets. The Portuguese took the lead on this, beginning a massive slave trade in Western Africa. This destroyed the thousand-year political dynamic that existed between the native peoples there. The most powerful tribes in West Africa captured whole villages and sold the inhabitants to Portuguese enslavers. The Portuguese quickly tried to reach Asia via this route. The Portuguese would soon receive another offer from a man trying to reach the Indies, which they would deny due to their position in Africa. Born in Genoa, Christopher Columbus was a well-read Italian man who had very little money. He read the classic Greek theorist Ptolemy, who accurately calculated the circumference of the earth. But Columbus believed he knew better than this ancient. He thought the world was much smaller than everyone believed. He postulated that if he were to sail west toward the setting sun, he would arrive very rapidly in China. This could potentially give Europe an edge on the Ottomans and help them to control the lucrative trade routes which passed through China. He pitched this idea to many courts across Europe. Eventually, he arrived in Castile, which was under the rule of Isabella of Spain and her husband, Philip II of Aragon. The two most powerful houses in Hispania were joined in union. This partnership supplied Aragon, the Castilian wool and resources it craved, and Castile could now call on Aragon's top-tier navy, as well as benefits from their trade routes. Their first endeavor was to rid Iberia of Muslim influence. By January 1492, the final Muslim stronghold fell. It was now time to challenge the Portuguese on the open ocean. The king and queen of the now united Spain eagerly agreed to Columbus's proposal, promising him three caravels. He set about gathering supplies and recruiting reluctant crew members for a voyage that would bring about the hellish destruction and genocide of the native Caribbean peoples. The Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria left the port at Saltes, bound for the Canary Islands. It was August 3, 1492. After stocking up on supplies, they cut straight for the Atlantic. On October 11, 1492, after a long voyage, they finally saw light and docked their ships at present-day San Salvador Island. They had no idea, but they had stumbled upon the Lucano Tainos. De Las Casas details the arrival of the Spanish ships from the perspective of the soon-to-be colonizers. Quote, the admiral took with him the royal standard and the captains the two banners with the green cross. On shore they saw very green trees, a lot of water, and various kinds of fruit. Unquote. Columbus, referred to as the admiral, went on to claim the land, the resources, and the people for Spain's monarchs. This vindicated Columbus. He now believed he was in India, hence the name he begins calling the natives. Columbus writes of these first inhabitants, quote, Because they were very friendly to us, I could see they were a people who could be converted to our holy faith. 
they took what we had and gave of their own very willingly. They should prove to be good servants, unquote. Columbus goes on to describe the first European sighting of a canoe. He claims these ships held up to 50 men and that they traveled alongside single and two-seater canoes, which are still popular today. The discovery of a new culture and peoples was not enough for the greedy Europeans. They quickly noticed the gold Juanin around the chief's necks and came to the conclusion that this land must be abundant with the rare metal. Within 48 hours of arriving, Columbus writes to the king, quote, This piece of land could be turned into an island in two days. Depending on the will of your highness, the entire population could be brought back to Castile or kept captive on this island, because with 50 men, the entire island could be subjugated, unquote. During his search, he noticed the natives he captured often spoke of the island of Colba, modern-day Cuba. In Columbus's warped mind, the existence of another island in the chain was concrete evidence that they had landed in Japan. He was then pointed in the direction of Bojillo, which he claimed for Spain and called Hispaniola, saying the island was, quote, about the size of Portugal, with probably twice the population, unquote. After the Santa Maria ran aground on Christmas Day, Columbus decided to leave 40 of his men behind to survive inside a fort constructed from the wrecked ship. He ordered them to begin the search for gold in the riverbeds and nearby villages. He was guaranteed the safety of his men by the local cacique, Guancangari. The admiral proved to be incredibly wrong about the Taino's military capacity, as all 40 would be found slaughtered before his return the following year. Upon Columbus's departure, the Spaniards began raping the local women, after which cacique Keonobo supposedly killed all the Spaniards, burnt their fort, and razed the village of Guancancari for aiding the Spaniards. Thanks to the advent of the printing press, news of the islands Columbus had quote-unquote discovered spread rapidly. Adventurers, mercenaries, and religious zealots flocked to Seville and Cadiz in the hopes of joining Columbus's second expedition. The queen was excited by the rising number of Christian converts. The king was ecstatic at the news of large gold reserves throughout the islands. Spanish Pope Alexander VI demarcated the extent of Spanish and Portuguese expansion, giving Portugal a large part of present-day Brazil. The second expedition was quickly outfitted. Seventeen ships with over 1,200 men left eagerly for the Canary Islands. This fleet cut due south and then west, inadvertently helped along by the transatlantic current. They arrived in the Lesser Antilles on November the 3rd. When the Spanish arrived, they captured Caribbean prisoners who claimed to be from Boriquen. Taking these Taino women and boys as hostages, the Spanish set sail with their captive navigators. Columbus sailed north in search of Hispaniola, stopping in present-day St. Croix, which was then inhabited by Caribs. Here, a Spanish rowboat rushed a canoe with four Carib men and two Carib women aboard. The Caribs resisted relentlessly, firing dozens of arrows. They killed one Spaniard and severely wounded another. Following the fight, 
A carib, whom the crew of hooligans thought was wounded beyond repair, had his head chopped off and his body cast overboard by the Spaniards, as they thought he would not survive the journey back to Spain. Columbus enslaved a carib woman and ordered her to do the bidding of Michel Cuneo for his quote-unquote bravery in the battle against the outnumbered native boat. Cuneo writes, quote, I conceived a desire to have my way with her. She was of another mind. When I started on her, she treated me so badly with her fingernails that I was sorry I had begun. To make a long story short, I took a rope to her and gave her a good whipping. In the end, we came to such an understanding that she seemed actually to have been raised in a school of whores." Unquote. As the Spanish fleet sailed northward, Columbus quote-unquote claimed the Virgin Islands for Spain and proceeded to name them. His fleet then came across Boriquen, thanks to the guidance of the Taino women they had captured. One woman jumped from the head boat and swam half a league to the shoreline. They anchored somewhere on the western shore of Boriquen, at which point they gathered supplies and fished in the plentiful coral reefs. Columbus would not explore the island he named San Juan Batista further. He was anxious to meet with his men on Hispaniola and give them provisions. Upon his arrival, Columbus noticed the attitude of the local inhabitants had greatly changed in his absence. Some natives had become gold merchants, trading gold dust and nuggets for Spanish trinkets. The rest treated the Spanish with quiet contempt. Long gone were the days of fraternization, the Spaniards had shown their true face. Isabella, a gold-mining settlement, was set up immediately. Here, Columbus resorted to violence and threatening the native and unruly Spaniard settlers alike. Additionally, Columbus soon realized he was incredibly wrong in his estimation of the island chain's position. The Portuguese had recently reached India via their African route, Columbus still resolved to find the, quote, middle passage, unquote, to Asia, which he was sure existed. In the meantime, he would relentlessly exploit the Cibao Tainos for their massive gold reserves. This led to rebellion, which Columbus callously crushed. In response, the Tainos stopped farming, choosing to starve rather than aid the Spanish. The Spaniards were indeed suffering at this point because of the lack of proximity of hyenos and Europeans prior to Columbus's arrival, each culture was stricken with new diseases that their bodies had never experienced before. An extreme form of syphilis was spreading throughout the nearly all-male Spanish population. This is what the Tainos gave the Spanish in the Colombian exchange. In return, the Tainos were given smallpox and numerous other European diseases. Additionally, Enslaved peoples from Africa were brought over to the islands. Therefore, slaver was the only reason the Antilles was so productive during this time. In exchange for yucca, which was pilfered from the Tainos, the European colonizers received more enslaved peoples. This tuber quickly became one of Africa's main plentiful crops, especially in places like the Congo, in which it could be preserved very well. Overall, of course, the Colombian exchange, or triangle trade, was only beneficial to Europeans, who used their advanced technology to exploit the Caribbean and later American countryside, 
with the labor of enslaved African people. Columbus quickly became fed up with administrating the fledgling colony, and he departed with three ships and 100 men for Cuba, then Jamaica, searching tirelessly for gold. When he returned to Isabella, it was a scene of chaos. Colonizers massacred the natives daily, and the natives responded in kind. Isabella's residents were ill and suffering. Columbus resolved to round up many natives and enslave them to better exploit their labor. 1,600 natives were rounded up, and 550 were thrown in boats, forced to relocate to Spain. The rest were, quote, given out, unquote, to the colonizers as slaves. Following this brutal display of inhumanity, the few Tainos who had not been made slaves were overwhelmingly nursing mothers who were terrified of recaptured. They dropped their babies and ran for the hills. Perhaps they thought their children would become coqui and bring the rains. Perhaps they thought a short life was better than a long one marred by suffering and enslavement. Of the 550 enslaved natives taken to Spain, only 200 would survive the trip. The rest would be tossed overboard unceremoniously as they died. The colonizers who returned to Spain spoke of mismanagement and corruption on the part of Columbus and his family. Queen Isabella was furious that so many natives were dying without being converted first, and the gold, which was supposed to flow endlessly back to Spain, had only come in dribbles in the first few years following colonization. Columbus was also breaking down physically. Ironically, the great discoverer was suffering from an intense form of arthritis, which rendered him nearly blind, brought him chronic pain, and caused his eyes to bleed. He attempted to deny these accusations and left for Spain once more. He would make two more voyages following his return trip, locating Trinidad and the South American mainland along the way. Upon Columbus's return to Hispaniola after his voyage, he was placed under arrest by two royal delegates sent to look into accusations of mismanagement. The man who would replace Columbus, Nicolás de Ovando, would prove to be an even more violent and genocidal monster than the original colonizers. Meanwhile, a contemporary of Columbus, Amerigo Vespucci, backlogged the quote-unquote discovery of the present-day South American mainland, cementing his name in history as the founder of the Americas. Nicolás de Ovando would be responsible for the day-to-day -day bureaucratic and administrative functions of the new, quote, West Indian colonies, unquote. He began the encomondero system. This utilized the social hierarchy of the native tribes against them and turned natives into slaves, caciques into overseers. It was now much harder to resist since to do so meant going against your own chief. The several rebellions attempted by the Tainos and Hispaniola faltered and were met with harsh punishment. In 1503, even the Tainos who aided the Spanish weren't spared. Eighty-four masters of vassals were burned alive in the middle of their bohío during an erietto celebrating friendship between the Taíno tribe and the Spanish. The Spaniards proceeded to butcher thousands of surprised natives and went on to lynch Casica Anacaona. The country's population was so devastated that natives from across the Caribbean were sent to Hispaniola so that the mines and fields had hands to work them. 
It's estimated at least 350,000 natives were murdered, killed themselves, or died of overwork or disease thanks to Spanish barbarism, just in Hispaniola alone. Whole villages drank the poisonous juice of the manioc, choosing suicide over enslavement. Countless pregnant women ate grass which induced miscarriages rather than give birth to a child who would only get to live as a Spanish slave. On his last voyage, Columbus dealt with repeated mutinies and nearly died at the hands of his own men. After the countless atrocities and deceptions committed by him on the island of Jamaica, where he was stranded for over a year, he returned to Hispaniola. Upon arriving, he would find himself under arrest once more, and he was forced back to Spain. He died there penniless, in constant legal battles with the crown, over his jurisdiction in the Indies. Kevin H. Siepel, the author of Conquistador Voices, puts it well, quote, Columbus had served as a bridge between two worlds. Like a bridge, it was his fate to be trodden upon. Everything he grasped seemed to turn sour in his hand, unquote. Columbus himself writes of his destitution in his last letter to the king and queen, quote, I myself have profited little from twenty years of laborious and dangerous service. Today in Castile, I have no roof over my head. If I need a meal or a bed, I must go to an inn or tavern, and I frequently have no money with which to pay the bill. I'm sick and worn out. Everything that I and my brothers ever had has been taken from us and sold. I am so ruined, as, as I have said. I've always wept for others, but now may heaven have mercy upon me, and may the earth weep for me. Remaining alone in my distress, sick, expecting death every day, and surrounded by hostile savages, cruel beyond belief. I have been so separated from the blessed sacraments. Weep for me, whoever has charity, truth, and justice. Unquote. In 1508, the first colonizers landed on Puerto Rican shores under the command of Juan Ponce de Leon. They followed the coast to a rich natural harbor and founded the small town of Caprera. Ponce was a lieutenant to Ovando in Hispaniola during the massacre of the Zaragoo tribe in 1503. Upon his arrival, the local cacique, Aguaybana, the first performed a sacred name-sharing ritual with Ponce, which was akin to becoming brothers in Taino culture. No doubt Aguaybana had heard the horror stories detailing the Spanish colonizers' atrocities across the Straits of Mona. It's possible he considered it prudent to try to live amicably with the Spaniards in order to protect his people from the same fate. Aguaybana I soon died following this initial meeting, and his nephew, Aguaybana II became cacique. In Puerto Rico, then called San Juan Batista, the political situation was completely unstable. The courts of Spain had recently ruled in the interest of the Columbus family, returning governance of the colonies to the inept children of the deceased admiral. The king was furious. In response, he sent Sotomayor to Puerto Rico to undermine Juan Serón's government. He ordered Sotomayor to settle in the west of the island. Unsurprisingly, he named the small western settlement Villa Sotomayor. Within three years of this settlement's founding, Sotomayor colluded with Ponce 
to initiate the first coup in Puerto Rico. Juan was sent back to Spain in chains, and Ponce was again in charge. Sotomayor was given the cacique Aguaybana and his sisters as slaves. Forced into back-breaking labor in the mines, the lead caciques planned to rebel with the new moon and forever crush the few hundred Spaniards in their midst. The Tainos of Puerto Rico first needed to figure out if these Christians could in fact be killed. They were unnerved by the Christian belief that Christ rose after three days, and they assumed this must be the case for all Christians. They drowned a man to test the theory. After three days of investigating the Spaniard's bloating body, they were convinced the Christians could die like any other man. On January 3, 1511, 11,000 Taino warriors set out to kill every colonizer they could find on Boriquen. Hundreds of Spanish colonizers were murdered. Among their number was the hated Sotomayor. The few who managed to escape owed their lives to a spy among the Taino natives, who warned Ponce of the uprising. Ponce assembled the few fighting men who were left alive on the island and went to work putting down the uprising. He killed many natives in the Coyuco Valley. He then marched to meet the majority of the Taino army in Yaguecas. The Spaniards were outnumbered by 10,900 men, but they had an overwhelming technological advantage. At the start of the fight, Ponce held back his infantry and ordered his early gunpowder units, or harquebusers, to single out Haguaybana the Brave. One of the shots hit the cacique, who quickly succumbed to his wounds, and the Tainos who were still fighting fled to the hills. Thousands were captured and branded with an F on their forehead as official property of Ferdinand, King of Spain. The few left alive kept up a guerrilla campaign for decades in the central mountains. Many more escaped on canoes and joined forces with their former enemies, the Caribs. They would ransack Spanish settlements for decades to come. Across the Caribbean, the few cells of organized resistance were being hunted to the ends of the earth. In Cuba, a cacique named Hatui had escaped the genocide in Hispaniola and attempted to lead the Tainos in raids against the few Spanish colonizers. In response, the Spaniards sent massive hunting dogs to rip apart the Tainos. Women and children were hunted down and tortured to reveal Hatui's location. When they found him, they sentenced him to burn at the stake. Before his execution, the priest told Hatui he should convert to Christianity, to which Hatui replied, quote, Why should I be like the Christians who are bad? Unquote. The priest answered him, quote, because those who die Christians go to heaven, and there they see God always." Unquote. Hatui responded by saying he wanted nothing to do with heaven if that's where Christians went. Natives were dying by the thousands every month. Many early Franciscan friars were incensed by this. Among them was Antonio de Montesinos, who roared from the pulpit in Santo Domingue, Quote, you are all in a state of mortal sin, and in it you live and die, on account of the cruelty and the tyranny which you use on this innocent people. Tell me, with what right and with what justice do you hold these Indians in such cruel and horrible serfdom? Are not they men? Do they not have rational souls? 
Are you not obliged to love them as yourselves? Do you not understand this? Do you not feel? How have you sunk to such depth? Unquote. Bartolome de las Casas puts it another way. Quote, the natives of whatsoever region we have entered have an acquired right to wage most just war against us and erase us from the face of the earth, and this right will be theirs until the day of judgment. Unquote. Although reforms were passed thanks to the pleas of these two men, laws in Madrid had little bearing on how things were run on the ground in the New World. Gold was still the number one concern for the Spanish crown. With the passing of Isabella, religious matters quickly took a back seat. By 1515, the Spaniards had decimated the Taino population from its original 60,000 or more to 14,000. They were all enslaved, save for a few women who were, quote, lucky enough, unquote, to become wives of Spaniards. As the native population dwindled, Spain set its sights toward Africa. They began enslaving African peoples in higher numbers to avoid doing the work of building their settlements themselves. The first several hundred West Africans arrived in Puerto Rico circa 1512. Juan Cerón was the governor once again. The Columbus family had one in the courts. He set about burning native canoes in order to keep them trapped on the island as slaves. Ponce was consoled with a small fleet, which was destined to uncover the North American mainland, locating Florida in the same year. As he attempted to locate the fabled Fountain of Youth, he was struck in the thigh by a native's poisoned arrow. His wound festered, infecting his blood, and he died in agony in 1521 in Havana. After his death, his original settlement, Caprera, was moved to the small islet of Puerto Rico. Ponce's statue still faces toward the original settlement he loved so much. For many years, Puerto Rico was the name of the island's main port, while the island was called San Juan. This was eventually changed, so now the islet of San Juan is the capital city of Puerto Rico. After Villa Sotomayor was destroyed in the 1511 rebellion, attempts were made to settle the western half of Puerto Rico, they culminated in the settlement of San Germán. San Germán was initially the object of carib raids. They attacked it several times after its creation. When Governor Mendoza arrived, he made a point to be confrontational with the Caribs. He sent out raiding parties of his own, but this backfired. Carib war canoes burned down San Germán and stormed into San Juan's harbor, setting fire to many buildings. Mendoza responded by attacking their main base of operations at Vayaquez, a small island chain in Puerto Rico. He killed over a hundred Carib men, women, and children and ran them off the islands. Mendoza believed that San Germán could be rebuilt. In Spain, the massive influx of gold and raw materials from the new colonies made them the largest and most powerful nation in the European world. Using the gold pillaged from the Caribbean, Philip took part in many major European wars. He was in a bitter fight with France over northern Italian holdings, and this fight spilled over into his New World colonies. French corsairs sacked and burned San Germán. The Straits of Mona, which separated Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, 
became extremely dangerous for merchants and civilians. In the 1530s, repeated attacks by French corsairs and Caribs rendered western and southeastern Puerto Rico uninhabitable for the Spaniards, with San Germán constantly being raised. The crisis of the 1530s brought about major depopulation in the Caribbean. The native population had been virtually wiped out by this point. Only about 3,800 people lived on the island, the vast majority being enslaved Africans, who resided almost exclusively in the island of San Juan. Only 1,500 natives are listed in the 1530 census. They had been decimated within a few decades. Additionally, the gold reserves on the island were running dry. During this period, hundreds of settlers left for Mexico and Peru, which were producing gold, copper, and silver in much higher quantities. In 1537, the Spanish crown and the Columbus family finally agreed on terms. The sovereign of Spain would now have direct jurisdiction over the islands. With the French encroaching in the ever-present danger of Carib attacks, the most pressing problem was the security of the island's citizens. Between 1532 and 1540, the first major fort, Fortaleza, was built in San Juan. Its position was not defensible, so a new fort was constructed, now facing the bay. This would be the Grand Fort, El Moro. The fort would not be finished for many years and would have constant problems with manpower and munitions. The British Bahamas and the French Lesser Antilles never needed such massive land fortifications to defend its colonies. They relied on their world-class navies. Spain, being such a large empire, did not have the ability to focus their energies on one area. Their decimation of the local population and later collapse mirrored the fall of the Roman Empire to a great degree. As Seville and Cadiz became rich, so did the mine bosses and merchants all at the expense of the native population and enslaved African peoples. The Spanish created powerful guilds which allowed them to put power into the hands of upper-class individuals at the expense of the rest of the state. The king got his money for his wars, so anything that happened in between didn't matter to him. This parasitic relationship inflated Spanish markets, leading to the depreciation of the price of raw materials from the Spanish colonies. The gold and silver would leave Spain, and so did the resources. They were left empty-handed, with only the corpses of tens of millions of native peoples to show for it. Between 1492 and 1600, at least 55 million people died at the hands of European colonizers. At the time, this number was 10% of the world's entire population. So many native people died that the planet literally cooled by 0.15 degrees Celsius. By 1544, the 60 natives left alive in Puerto Rico were all freed from bondage and sent to the mountains to live isolated from the rest of Spanish society. With them, there were about four to 500 free natives. Their settlement was called the Indiera. It housed the last Tainos for centuries, and many still live there. When it was clear the Puerto Rican gold mines had failed, a new source of income was needed. Spaniards quickly zeroed in on sugar as that new source. It was a sweeping sensation in Europe. Where honey or cinnamon had once been the star, sugar was now the main attraction. 
Sugarcane grew extraordinarily well in Hispaniola, so they attempted to grow it in Puerto Rico as well. The yield was spectacular. Tens of thousands of pounds of Puerto Rican sugar was exported to Spain. This was made possible through the high influx of enslaved African peoples who were sent over to Puerto Rico to work on sugar plantations. These mills could be powered by water, ox, or human beings and required immense precision on every level of production and manufacturing. Poorer citizens preferred to raise cattle and horses. Many of the horses, which were used to conquer Mexico, Peru, and Florida, were reared in Puerto Rico. Additionally, Puerto Rico produced large quantities of leather, which was used by the Spanish for a number of different applications, mainly military-based. When French corsairs wrecked and captured Spanish ships in the 1530s, Spanish authorities attempted to alleviate the situation. They devised the fleet system. To quote its significance from History of Puerto Rico, a panorama of its people by Fernando Pico, quote, The system of fleets ensured the flow of merchandise between Andalusia and the American ports of Veracruz and Nombre de Dios. Corsairs were not able to prevent the system from working and had to limit their raids to ships which lagged behind or were separated by hurricanes, unquote. This system of fleets was detrimental to anyone who did not live in the major metropolis areas which were selected as port of calls for the fleet. San Juan was the only city in Puerto Rico which allowed for embarkation. This left many Puerto Ricans with little choice. They would either heave their goods across mountains and rivers and become subject to commissions and taxes, or they could trade with the Dutch ship, which was resupplying close by. The history of Puerto Rico was entrenched with smuggling and black market entrepreneurs doing anything to defy Spanish authorities. Smuggling had opened Puerto Rican markets to foreign goods and ideas, the main trade partners of Puerto Rico being their Caribbean island neighbors at this time. By 1564, Puerto Rico was officially given over to the rule of the military governors. These men wielded considerable power on paper, in reality, they were unable to stop smuggling, and many governors participated in the act. They could not stop Spanish men from settling down with black or native women, and they could not get their soldiers paid or equipped sufficiently. They worked with the church, which had been present on the island since 1509, in attempting to curb quote-unquote immorality and gambling. Following a royal decree which authorized anyone to rent land on the island, Refugees from Portuguese Brazil flocked there. Following these settlers were some 250 families who arrived intermittently from the Canary Islands. When the Spanish War with France had ended and the threat of the Corsairs had been curtailed with the fleet system, a new threat began to rise. Queen Elizabeth's English sea dogs were on the prowl and Puerto Rico was in their crosshairs. The British would attempt to usurp all of Spain's island colonies. They would bring with them the quote-unquote golden age of piracy, where legend and fact collided. The adversity which plagued the Puerto Rican people during this time would shape their culture and lives for years to come. Puerto Rican mestizos would overtake the once numerous Taino population, the Taino culture, language, and history remains for us to sort through.
The legacy of the Taino people does not stop with their decimation. As the Tainos believed, life and time are merely a series of steps forward and back. Many who hail from Puerto Rico still refer to themselves as Boricua, an homage to the island's native name. When met with genocidal colonizers, many Tainos died, but their descendants still live on today, as Taino blood is now the dominant gene makeup of modern Caribbeans. Scientific study shows that 61% of all maternal Puerto Rican DNA is of indigenous origin, while 26% is African, and only 13% is European. The numbers vary greatly for paternal Puerto Rican DNA, with 80% being European and 20% being other non-indigenous. The Tainos assimilated themselves with the many new ethnic groups which arrived on their soil, and through that assimilation, their roots remain strong. Many millions of Puerto Ricans now claim Taino descent, and interest in the native people's culture and customs has resurged over the past 30 years. The more we understand about these unique people, the more we understand about Puerto Rican history. Before going to battle, Aguaybana supposedly buried several hundred stones in the ground, lest they fall into the hands of the Spaniards. On these stones, researchers today have deciphered three written languages, ancient Hebrew, ancient Phoenician, and an unknown third language. This knowledge was not available to the general public until the 1890s. A Catholic priest had gone to visit a woman to give her her last rites and she claimed she had stones which were from Aguaybana's library. She said the stones were her family secret, faithfully kept for hundreds of years. Since their discovery, another hundred years had gone by without a second look into her claims, as the stone tablets were considered cheap forgeries. White historians believed there was no way these quote-unquote backwards people had knowledge of any written language. It is only very recently that more objective work was done to uncover the truth. And though modern historians are attempting to piece together the past, many questions still remain unanswered. This sensational look into Taino history is only the first step into a vast world of information which is yet to be uncovered. Unfortunately, many Taino artifacts have already been destroyed. Many semis were burned by the Spanish as they were considered tools of, quote, devil worship, unquote. How do we reconcile the past? How do Puerto Ricans move on from the pain and trauma perpetuated by and against their ancestors? As someone with white skin and Puerto Rican blood flowing through my veins, I can say with certainty that it is a long and difficult road to reconcile the past. 500 years of rape and barbarism culminated in the Puerto Rico we know today. It's painful to come to terms with the fact that I would not exist without the suffering and trauma my ancestors endured. But I must hold all of this within myself. This is what inspires me to shine light on the truth of history today. We may be native, 
African, Spanish, or any combination of the three, but all Puerto Ricans must accept the past before we can move on to create a better future. The fact that we can exist so paradoxically is painful, but it is also a testament to humanity's will to live and progress, to make it the light at the end of the tunnel. So the next time you start up a barbecue, light up a tobacco cigarette, lounge the day away on a hammock, play an up-tempo song on a set of maracas, or take your canoe out to the lake, I hope you'll all take a moment to think of the Tainos who did it first on this since-stolen land. Thank you all for listening. On the next episode of Turning Tides, Piecing Together the Past, we will be covering the turbulent end of the 16th century and the even more turbulent 17th century in Puerto Rico. The island will face repeated attacks, depopulation, and mismanagement on a massive scale. Until then, I'm your host, Joseph Pascone, and Taino Tea to you all. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.